Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are continuing our series with ASTS, and in conversation today, we have Dr. Jeffrey Punch. He is a professor of surgery. Uh, He received his medical degree from University of Michigan, uh, completed his general surgery residency at University of Michigan as well, followed by a two-year multi-organ transplant fellowship. He was trained to perform kidney, pancreas, and liver transplant procedures. Upon completion of his training, he began his surgical practice, which also consists of mostly abdominal transplantation. He he performs these procedures on both adults and children. He performed the first living donor liver transplant procedure ever in the state of Michigan in 1996. We are so very honored to have you on Behind the Knife. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So to start, uh, kick off our segment here, um, my very first question for you. What do you do in the field of transplant surgery and what led you to transplant? Well, I really loved surgery. I like fixing things. And when I came across transplant, I really enjoyed, you know, the magic of, um, of what it can do for patients. And I like suturing blood vessels together, which is primarily what you're doing. Uh, it's a challenge and uh, it's um, a great career. So what does your practice consist of? Well, I stopped doing livers about five years ago. It's sort of a young man's thing. I primarily do kidney transplants. Uh, I still do uh, deceased donor operations, including recovering uh, all abdominal organs while liver, kidney, and pancreas. And I uh, do deceased and living donor kidneys, uh, the occasional pancreas transplant, and then some dialysis access surgery. And then if my patients need simple general surgery, I will take care of that. You started a lot of international work in, um, in transplant. Tell us a little bit about what led you to doing international work and uh, what kind of challenges and um, things that were you were able to do in this field? Well, it actually started out through uh, a church I go to that was um, um, involved with uh, exchange work in uh, East Africa, in Kenya. And uh, I went there with uh, my daughter and learned to love the area and love the people. But what I was doing was essentially teaching anatomy and uh, basic science and uh, research techniques and so forth. And they had some fledgling medical schools I was working at, and we were working on some research projects, but it wasn't really my skill set. But um, a woman who is e- of Ethiopian and- ancestry named Sanait Baseha 
who is actually a neighbor of mine and a colleague of my wife, they're both uh, OBGYNs, uh, had been going to Ethiopia and uh, had found out through contact with their health minister that they were very interested in starting kidney transplant. And she asked me if I would go and uh, see if I thought it was feasible. And I jumped at the opportunity. That was 19 or that was uh, 2013. And um, I made a relationship with the health minister there and they seemed very committed. They had had groups that had come through from other places, from the UK, from Egypt, from Sudan, from India, but but it never seemed like a good match. And uh, this seemed like something that was feasible. They had a talented group of people and I very much wanted to be involved. And they seemed very, very committed uh, to uh, putting the resources in place to make it happen. So uh, I signed up and it took about two and a half years to get the first kidney transplant done. But since then, we've done over 100. What were some of the initial barriers that you experienced when you were setting the program up and, and over that initial time in order to do the first transplant? There were a lot of barriers, some of which I recognized immediately and some of which uh, took time to understand. They basically didn't do any vascular surgery at the public hospital that I would be working at called St. Paul's Hospital in the capital city, Addis Ababa. Uh, so they didn't have uh, fine sutures. They didn't have, uh, no one used um, surgical loops. Uh, they, they, they didn't do any anastomoses. They were excellent general surgeons, but, um, but they had no vascular experience. And that's primarily what transplant is. Uh, at least on the recipient side. So that took uh, quite a bit of training. They had very little laparoscopic experience and we initially wanted to do all the donors laparoscopically because that's what I believe is the state of the art. And we wanted it to be a state of the art program. Um, it, just about everything you can think of when you walk around a kidney transplant program in uh, the US or in, in Europe or Asia that uh, has a developed program they didn't have, they didn't, they couldn't produce sterile ice. They didn't have, uh, they did have the immunosuppressants available on the market there. Uh, and they had handfuls of patients that had been going out of country to get transplant. And those patients were by and large doing well, which I took as proof of concept that if we could transplant these patients, then they could do well in the environment. Because I was a little bit nervous about, you know, putting immunosuppressed patients in a, in an environment with um, a lot of endemic diseases and so forth. But that part has turned out very well. Are you still going there for your continued mission trips? And how has the, you said that you've done almost 100 now there. And so how has the infrastructure and state of the art uh, improved over there? They're basically independent, uh, but we've, we've taken a, a conservative approach. We've been doing uh, very straightforward cases for the first 100. We've done a few challenging cases, and some that we didn't recognize as challenging, but it turned out to be challenging. And so they still like me to be there when they're uh, operating, but I, I only scrub in uh, a minority of the time. I give advice. I help out when anatomy is unusual or when uh, there are um, um, surgical or medical challenges that need um, experience. But they're capable of doing straightforward transplants and straightforward nephrectomy on the living donors. It's all been living donor. 
um, Ethiopians have large families, and uh, it's a it's a cultural value that's that's very uh, deeply ingrained, and so that works out well from a transplant point of view because almost everyone has a donor. Do you do you do all the donors laparoscopically, as you mentioned, or or you're no, doing them we, or we, open hysterectomy? We started doing them laparoscopically, and that was that was quite challenging. Um, because the skill set just wasn't there, but they were coming along. But what happened was uh, the cost of the consumable uh, supplies was was hurting them badly. Um, I believe you really need to use uh, endostaplers. Uh, you need um, uh, some sort of a harmonic scalpel device, and the hand pieces we've sort of proven are are not reusable, and so. Uh, after about 40 or so, they, they ran out of those supplies. And at the same time, the group had been invited. We, we actually um, uh, all went together to an international transplant meeting and uh, they met uh, a group from Brazil at the Hospital do Rim, which is in Sao Paulo. It's the largest kidney transplant program in the world. They do close to a thousand kidney transplants a year. It's all they do at the at the hospital, and they have also significant resource constraints, and they believe strongly in doing them uh, through small flank incisions. So we switched over to that, which I think is not ideal, and we'd like to go back to laparoscopic, but the cost just drops dramatically. It was costing several thousand dollars per transplant when we did it laparoscopically. Now it costs under $100 pretty amazing. It costs, you know, a couple, a couple sutures. And I mean, it, it just, uh, you know, once they, once they've invested in the instruments and the retractors and, you know, it's just a matter of a handful of sutures and some IV fluids and a few medicines and that's about it. Where do you see your next project taking you? Well, um, I would really like to help them develop deceased donation. Um, they've uh, worked closely with a group in Barcelona to, you know, to become familiar with it, but it just hasn't happened. And I would like to help them make it happen. I think it's just a, a, a sort of a, a hurdle. It's, it's interesting that, you know, the real hurdle is actually on the medical end. The, the society, uh, I think, will buy into it readily. But um, embracing brain death uh, as, uh, you know, a fact is something that they need to get to. And right now they have uh, patients that are, you know, clinically dead that they continue to, uh, to treat. And uh, they need to um, overcome that, um, that, that leap of faith to say, okay, this, this person has has died and we can um, withdraw ventilatory support without it being murder. And when they get there, uh, uh, I think they will be ready to do deceased donation soon after. But first step is just embracing brain death as a concept. I would also like to do kids. Um, they have several children. We've, we've done some teenagers uh, and we have a child that is 12 that we plan to do this fall uh, that needs a transplant. And really, um, um, 
other than, you know, some nursing issues and, and, um, a few, um, uh, medical issues. There's no reason why we can't do, uh, children. They're not ready to do infants, but, um, I'd like to do that. And then also I've been in contact with groups in Kenya and in Rwanda where they would like to do a, a, a similar process where we uh, basically, you know, go there and, and train them on site, which I think is really the way to go. You had mentioned mission trips, and we, we try not to look at it as mission trips because I think that's an old school way of delivering healthcare in the developing world where you basically bring, you know, the Johns Hopkins Hospital or Duke or the University of Michigan or UCLA, you bring everything we have and go to a rural facility and help out a number of patients and then leave. And it doesn't really impart anything in the area. In fact, it can actively inhibit the development of their local infrastructure. And so what instead we do is we just bring ourselves. The only thing I bring is um, my loops and uh, everything else I insist that they provide um, and and they do. And so then uh, it's not just a matter of, you know, having surgeons that know how to do it, but they have nurses that know how to take care of patients and uh, pharmacists that can handle the complexities of the medication regimens and um, um, operating rooms that have um, the organization they need to make it all happen. And it's really been remarkable to see it happen. And it's it's produced a lot of pride locally that, you know, they're doing this. Is there any future for liver transplantation there or is kidney the kidney the limit? Oh, no, uh, there's definitely a future for liver transplant. But step one will be getting disease donation going. I think they're they're several years away from being able to to do liver transplants. They've talked about it. They want to do it. They'd like to do heart transplants as well. But um, they really need to have uh, dis deceased donation in place before that can proceed. And then what if I'm a young person, uh, resident, medical student, who's really has a passion and interest in international work and is interested in transplantation? Now, clearly you've shown it's possible, but this probably isn't, you know, something that's that's mainstream and a lot of people aren't doing it. Is it possible to to wed this together, to wed both of these two passions together for um, a handful of, of young individuals that are coming along? I think so. I think there's a lot of places where transplant is needed and not just transplant, but all sorts of, of things um, of, you know, specialty skills, they have, you know, they have a lot of the basics. They can do a lot of things at the, you know, their surgical facilities, but they don't have subspecialty care. They don't have the most advanced things that we have. And the problem is that to train someone, they, you know, they would be more than willing to have someone, uh, you know, an Ethiopian surgeon um, go to the United States or, or to Europe and and spend time training. But the problem is it takes so long that even people that intended to go back to their native country, the, the lure of, of the higher salaries and when, when you have lived in, in the U.S. for the better part of a decade and you have family that's growing up and children and spouses, and uh, it's, it's really hard to then um, um, 
you know, return. And, and even if you do, as I said, that's the beauty of, of the system we've used in that we, we create the program on site. So if, you know, if someone just shows up with the skill to do a transplant, but there's no one there and none of the things that they need, uh, the transplant's not really going to happen. Or if it is, it's going to be very low volume and, and not very efficient. So I think that people that want to help, um, the first step is relationships. With, with, with Africa in particular, it's all about relationships. You can't expect to, um, to uh, develop um, collaborations without multiple visits over periods of time where you build trust uh, and uh, you work together because sometimes they are doing things differently and it turns out that their way is actually right. And so you can't be too um, arrogant about it because um, we we have a lot that we can do, but they do a whole lot with, with surprisingly little and you need to, like I said, collaborate. You need to work together. A, a, an example of this is that when I first started going there, one thing that I thought was going to be a barrier is that they don't have narcotic analgesia. So I thought, oh, this is going to be bad. You know, we're doing these operations and then the patients won't have pain control. And I brought a nurse to help train the nurses and she was aghast. But it turns out they do quite well without narcotic analgesia. And, you know, the, the rest of the world is sort of resetting and saying, you know, we've probably been overdoing the narcotic thing. Um, and uh, so it's an example, you know, where the learning can be both directions. It's really fascinating work, and um, it's really, really interesting to hear about it and, and what, you're, what you've been able to accomplish over there. I'd list, just like to change gears just for a moment here um, and kind of get some, get some of your thoughts about the transplant surgery pipeline. Um, you know, when you think of transplantation, certainly University of Michigan really comes to mind as one of these storied programs. You all have always had this, this history of having a strong surgical faculty uh, many leaders in the field have come from your institution and really a wealth of knowledge and oversight with uh, SRTR having been there for a number of years. So I gather you must have mentored your fair share of transplant surgeon over, over transplant surgeons over your career, career. And I just wanted to get your insight into what you think, what have been your perceptions over the years of why medical students and why surgical residents choose a field like transplantation? Well, I think, um, Thank you for the, the kind words to begin with, but I think you just have to um, uh, essentially stay out of the way. It's such a magical thing. It's, it's such a, a miraculous uh, uh, technology to be part of. Uh, there are just few things in medicine. I mean, there are things you know, like cancer surgery where you cure someone, but you don't take someone that's terribly ill and make them well again. There's not many things like that except for transplantation and just, you know, witnessing over and over and over the, you know, the cold gray organ that you then reperfuse and, and fill with blood and, and it, you know, comes back to life and starts to make urine or starts to make bile or starts to beat. It's, I think that is such a, a, a fabulous thing that if you expose people to it, I think it's, it's a very attractive thing to be part of. 
And, you know, we see it through the the paraprofessionals too, the nurses and mid-level providers and pharmacists and so forth. They it's it's an enjoyable thing to be part of because you feel like, you know, you're um, you're you're doing something when you go to work. As a parting advice for like medical students and junior general surgery residents looking at this field as a future career, any words of advice? Well, my advice is to look uh, to uh, models like the one that we've shown that can work, where, where you really go and collaborate. Um, there's, there's a group in the UK that's also been working with Eastern European nations to help them uh, establish uh, transplantation, and it's a similar thing. You have to, you have to go regularly, and since there's only a certain amount of time that one person can be out of the country, it really helps having a team. And I, I've had, you know, a half dozen other surgeons have, have gone with me, and in some cases, you know, gone and you know, help do transplants with the Ethiopians. Um, and so it needs to be, um, you know, it needs to be a large project. We've also had a, a half dozen nephrologists that go most of the time, most of the weeks. I usually go about one week a month um, for at least um, eight to 10 months a year. And then uh, those, the other months are filled in by other surgeons. And um, I think that that sort of a model, as opposed to the model, as I said before, of, you know, sort of picking a, a spot with need and going there and delivering care. Um, what, what we do is, you know, I, I don't put the sutures in unless once in a while I, I need to, but, but for the most part, I'm there helping the Ethiopians put the sutures in. They're, they're at the wheel. They're doing everything. I'm just guiding them. And I think, you know, looking for those sorts of opportunities where what we do well, uh, we can you know, show them how to do is it's the future of, of you know, international work as opposed to the days where we needed to go and 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 deliver care where there was nothing because that those those places are 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 few and far between in the developing world and and the reason they exist is because of poverty which is not um, necessarily related to um, a lack of medical care it's just a lack of money and so you know in I mean, there are very advanced hospitals and uh, Africa, you, you need to see Africa to understand it. I, you can't draw a picture uh, with words. Well, Dr. Punch, um, it's truly been a pleasure. I really want to thank you on behalf of the ASTS and on behalf of Behind the Knife on uh, taking time out of your day to talk to us. It's been really insightful and it's uh, just was a true joy to, to learn about what you've accomplished over your career and and the knowledge that you've been able to transfer to clearly a country in need. So really, really want to extend our uh, welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Today, we continue our series with the ASTS, and we're joined by Peter Liu. Peter's currently a chief surgical resident at Columbia University, and he's going to stay on there next year for his abdominal transplant surgery fellowship. Peter went to Columbia for both his undergraduate training as well as his medical school training. He, did his he took two years off during his residency and served as the adult ECMO fellow under Dr. Matt Baquetta, as well as the intestinal and multivisceral transplant fellow under, under Dr. Tom Cato. 
Um, I had the pleasure of working alongside Peter for two years during my transplant fellowship at Columbia. And I'll tell you, he's the kind of the resident that even though he was several years my junior, Peter, Peter made you better just by working with him. He made you a better doctor and he made you a better, better person. So, Peter, it's truly a pleasure to have you join us with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so, Peter, what can you tell us about your current level of training in surgery thus far and what you've done in transplantation? Yeah, so um, it, it's been it was an interesting, um, not a very straightforward um, path for me. Um, I was finishing PGY three year, um, looking to take a few years off to do something, um, but actually didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, I was very interested in hernias and abdominal wall reconstruction, um, so I was. Um, um, I tried to pursue um, some fellowships um, that gave me experiences doing hernias, uh, but those fell apart. So kind of at the end of PGY3 year, I really didn't know what, what I had, um, what my options were. But um, I remembered working with Dr. Cato. Um, he's a liver transplant surgeon um, at Columbia when I was a medical student. And he has been doing some very interesting things um, um, with um, tumor resections as well as intestinal transplant. And so I thought of calling him um, and I gave him a shot of an email and I said, um, you know, I would be interested in working with you um, if you would have me. And I think the timing worked out great because he immediately called me back and he said, actually, I've been working, I've been looking for a resident um, um, who could work with me in the, in the intestinal transplant um, field um, and to kind of, um, work with me clinically as well as doing the research. Um, so I immediately signed up with him. Um, there was some trouble uh, trying to get um, clinical privileges um, at the hospital because now that I wasn't a resident, um, I had to get malpractice and all of that stuff. Um, so it ended up working out where I would also take an, a, an adult ECMO fellowship, which would give me the clinical privileges. So I ended up doing two fellowships um, at the same time for two years. Um, and it was very busy, but it was an incredible experience. So tell us a little bit about uh, multivisceral transplant. What is it and what are the indications for the transplant? Yeah, so multivisceral transplant is actually um, falls under the category of intestinal transplant. And intestinal transplant is usually is any kind of transplant that is done for um, children or adults with intestinal failure. Um, the ideology of failure can be a lot of different things. Um, it could mean that you don't have any intestine, either it was removed because it was ischemic from volvulus or from gastroschisis. Um, it could be from trauma where tr um, or I iatrogenic injury where the intestine had to be removed or resected. Um, or it could also be uh, malabsorptive issues from congenital conditions um, where um, children are not absorbing any nutrients. Um, or um, it can also range from um, um, to the other kind of etiologies like um, tumors, where you have tumors that are wrapping around major blood vessels that are supplying the intestine that it needs to be taken out. Um, the, but the most common reason why we would do a multivisceral transplant rather than just an isolated transplant, and a multivisceral transplant really means um, all the organs that are supplied by the SMA and the celiac um, arteries, uh, which would include the liver, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, and pancreas, um, would be in a patient who has intestinal failure that is on parental nutrition that is now developed TPN-related cirrhosis. And that's probably the most common reason we would do something called a multivisceral transplant. 
So patients who would qualify for an intestinal um, a transplant alone would be patients um, um, who are on parental nutrition um, with intestinal failure that have not yet um, developed cirrhosis or severe liver injuries from TPN. Um, these patients might need a transplant earlier um, because, for example, they would have multiple line-related sepsis um, problems or patients who are otherwise not really able to have a good quality of life um, just being on parental nutrition alone. So, so Peter, tell us, why did you choose a career in transplantation? That's a very good question. Um, I, I, I think it started out just because I thought what Dr. Cato was doing was interesting. I, am, I wasn't committed at that point, but I think um, after those two years, I really, um, it was a very busy two years, but I had just a, a great experience just working with the fellows like Cutler um, and Advaith, um, working with the liver transplant surgeons, um, going out on the procurements and seeing all the things that we that could be done um, and the kind of dramatic changes in the transformation that you see these patients who come to you extremely sick, malnourished, um, and after you do the transplant um, in a few months, um, the, that, that kind of transformation that you see is, is truly a, a remarkable experience and it's a privilege to be a part of the, that kind of care. Um, I fell in love um, with transplant over those two years. Um, I think particularly because I'm somebody who really, really enjoys the technical aspects of surgery, the elegant um, surgery. Um, and so seeing that transplant, as a transplant surgeon, you're not just a general surgeon, you're a vascular surgeon, um, you're a pediatric surgeon, you're doing reconstructions, you're taking things out. Um, you're really practicing surgery at kind of the highest technical um, level possible. Um, that is probably what really drew me into uh, in, into transplant as a field. Um, and then, what Peter? Do you, what do you think are potential barriers for for reasons why surgical residents don't want to consider a career in transplantation? Um, I think to me, the most, um, at least in my experience and in, in in my residency, the most. Uh, the probably the biggest reason is because residents are simply just not. Uh, exposed to the transplant field at an early stage. Um, I think there are some medical students, um, we have a medical student program that does allow some medical students to go out on some procurements. Um, that's usually almost, I think it's for first year medical students. So I feel like by the time they really start choosing um, career paths um, and choosing residencies, they really don't, they, they might have forgotten that kind of experience. Um, I, I will say that um, I have um, also the privilege of working with very closely with several junior residents in my residence pro in my program, um, and I have you know uh, dragged them along to procurements with me and asked them to help participate in these transplant cases. And they've seen very early on kind of the um, the fascination and and kind of the amazing part of working with transplant. And um, they are I have three junior residents who are extremely interested in working in transplant now. So I think that's kind of a, a, a cool thing. Um, I know that there are some other programs where um, transplant is a big part of their residency, where you do see a lot more residents go into transplant. It's really interesting that you said that because uh, at my alma mater in med school, we uh, they encouraged 
medical students from like first year all the way up to fourth year to carry a pager. And it was such a big thing to like carry the transplant pager and you would get to go on procurement. And that was one of the things that actually like right away, like really solidified my interest in surgery. So I can only imagine when you are actually in the field of surgery and get to get to do these cool uh, procurements. I think that's a great way to kind of plant the seed uh, from the get go. Coming off of that um, on the same topic, what can, kind of advice do you give to your junior surgical residents who are interested in transplant and what would make them stand out as a fellow applicant? Is research important? Is uh, doing more rotations on transplant surgery important? Could you kind of give us your two cents on how uh, how applicants can stand out? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that probably the biggest advice I can give you um, is something that I uh, actually didn't even follow myself is to get started early. Um, there are so many opportunities in in several transplant centers, um, including ours at Columbia and Cutler knows very well, um, that there's so many opportunities to get involved both clinically and in research. Um, I think the most common path that residents um, these days go into fellowship and become a very competitive um, applicant is through research. Um, several of our residents who have um, gone into fellowship um, in the past several years have been extremely prolific um, in the lab. Um, we have a very, very um, um, high profile um, uh, 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 immune, transplant immunology lab at Columbia, where a lot of residents will come, not just from our residency, but from all over the world, actually, to come do research um, with us um, and to publish a lot of papers. I didn't really go through that route. I do, I did do some research and I was involved with intestinal transplant research um, here at Columbia, but a lot of my experience was clinical, um, which I think is a little bit unique um, because I stayed in the OR um, um, for those two years that I was doing my gap year um, and accrued a lot of clinical experience, which I think um, for me, I had a lot of fun. Um, and um, I was um, relatively productive, but I didn't do as much basic science um, as other people. Um, but I think if you can get started early, if you think that you're interested in it and you pursue, um, I think there's so many um, surgeons as well as researchers out there who are willing to accept the help um, and to get you connected early. Peter, what's your understanding or perceptions of what the jobs mar job market is going to be like for a new transplant grad in a couple of years when you finish your training? Yeah, um, you know, I I just finished um, fellowship interviews um, around the country and I met with a lot of surgeons and a lot of um, my fellow applicants. I think um, what I have heard is relatively mixed. I think some people are, are um, a little bit um, skeptical that the the transplant market has been, or uh, the job market has been pretty saturated. But I think from from my conversations with most um, surgeons that I've um, that I've interviewed with, as well as a lot of the applicants, is that people are quite optimistic that um, there will be a job for you when you finish your fellowship. And what about um, multi visceral transplant? Is that um, do you foresee that market changing anytime soon, or Probably the same as it has been before. 
And that's an interesting one. Um, I think um, multivisceral transplant is a, an extremely specialized field, um, and there's only several I can count, you know, in my two fingers or my two hands, what um, the amount of transplant centers available around the world that do a high volume of multivisceral intestinal transplant, and that's probably for good reason. I mean, I think. These patients are extremely challenging patients um, with very, very prolonged post-operative courses, um, you know, and you need to develop a very close relationship with these patients that will often last for years, if not decades. Um, and um, so there, there are only a few highly specialized centers um, that are doing these. Um, most of that is because of the um, revolutionized uh, or, or, or medications that have revolutionized um, shortcut, um, most notably something called Gatex. Um, it's a GLP-2 agonist, which um, increases a lot of intestinal mucosal growth and absorption. So there's really not that much intestinal transplants um, being performed in the world today, um, again, for probably for good reason. So, um, but because of that, um, there are also a few places that do train you. So I think there's not too many people coming out um, of training with this kind of experience. Um, so um, I think that if you, if this is something that really interests you and you get uh, connected pretty early, um, you still will, I think, have opportunities down the line um, when you're a full-fledged surgeon to um, pursue this. Because again, given how challenging it is, um, not many people want to do it. Um, so I think that if it's something that really interests you, um, you will have that opportunity. Well, Peter, um, I really want to thank you for uh, all of your input and for you taking time out of your you know, busy chief resident life to spend a moment with us this evening. So uh, it's truly a pleasure, tr truly an honor, and I would just like to thank you. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are continuing our series with ASTS, and today we are honored to have Dr. Lisa Johannesson joining us. She's at MD-PhD OBGYN who came from Sweden to launch a very novel clinical trial in 2016. She started, she was a part of the team that did the first uterus transplant in Sweden and came to the US in 2016 to launch a similar clinical trial in the United States. Since then, she has taken up a job here. She's now the head of the uterus transplant at Dallas Baylor. So far, there are eight successful uterus transplant um, done in Europe, and she was part of the one that was the first successful one in the United States. We are so very honored to have you on Behind the Knife. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I would like to uh, start this segment with a very broad question. Tell us, what is your job in transplant surgery? How did you choose uterus transplant to be, uh, be your career? So I did my residency back in Sweden in OBGYN, and I wanted a research project uh, aside of what I was doing. And I was approached by one of our professors that just started this, what I thought back then was a crazy project. He started thinking about uterus transplant. And this was way before any clinical cases had been done. So back then we were doing surgeries in rats and mice. So I had to go, he approached me, asked me if I wanted to start and potentially make that into a PhD. And I had to go home, uh, think about it for a while. But then I started seeing patients that had these issues, fertility issues, that couldn't get pregnant, they couldn't carry children. 
And I got interested. So I started doing, suddenly I found myself in the lab doing uterus transplants of rats. And then we were lucky, we started to get pregnancies with the rats and that kind of triggered our interest even more. So we started going on to larger animal models and eventually we did baboon studies. And that the large part of the baboon studies is in my PhD, in my thesis. And then now when I presented my thesis, we were lucky enough to be able to leave the animal studies and go on to the first clinical trial in the world. And it's just been a major part of my career since. But who knew? It started with a small research project and I had no clue that I one day would, would be working only with this. So what is your training You're in your background? Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, when you started doing your residency and your, in your animal research in Sweden, what led you to the United States? So I, I did my training in OBGYN and I started doing this research project at the same time as I was doing my training. And then I eventually went on to doing a fellowship in Sweden in gynae oncology. And I did also a fellowship in Australia in gynae oncology. By, by the time I was in, in Australia, uh, we had already had pregnancies, successful deliveries in Sweden of the uterus transplanted patients. So I was contacted by Baylor in Dallas they wanted to start up a program here and in the beginning i was going back and forth between australia to sydney to help with the launch of the program but then as time went by we managed to to get me over here full full time instead so since 2000 beginning of 2017 i'm full time in dallas and so dr johanna said what is it about um uterine transplant that that really sets it apart from the other aspects of your uh, of the field that you practice in. I mean, clearly, it's a novel it's a novel idea and a novel concept that can can allow women to do something that they may have never done before. But how does it really set things apart from the other aspects of your career or your your um, contemporaries in your career? So I think I mean uterus transplant, as you mentioned, it's a very novel transplant but it's a very special thing because it's an intersecting between different disciplines so it's not only an organ transplantation but it's also a very advanced fertility treatment and it's challenging in a way because you kind of have to form new teams these are disciplines that never worked together before that's the fun part of it but it's also the challenging part to get all these components working together and it's a very special type of transplant because it's a transplant and I don't know any other organ that's only meant to be there for for a temporary time it's just meant to be with the recipient for the pregnancy and then for the delivery and then you take the organ out so the the recipient doesn't have to be in immunosuppression for a very long time so it's a very peculiar new type of transplant and then what kind of collaborations did you have over the years with transplantations and or transplant surgeons or, um, you know, it may not be a nephrologist or a hepatologist, but someone who's man- helping manage in the immunosuppression. So how were those alliances forged and what did that look like as you were starting to develop that over the course of the years as, as this actually got into practice? So I think when we started in Sweden, it was very much driven by the gynecological department, just because that was where it started. And that's where the ideas with fertility treatments and everything came up. But we very quickly realized that this is an organ transplantation. And you cannot, as a gynecologist, 
do all of the surgery. You cannot manage all the immunosuppression and all of those things. So we quickly included the transplant section. And then you have all these other parts. We have, we have nephrologists that, that helps us. We have obstetricians. We have uh, MFM doctors. We have em- embryologists. So there's a lot of different areas that we had to incorporate. And that wasn't easy to start with. But I think by the time we got to Dallas, uh, I knew exactly what parts uh, was necessary to have in that type of team. And we found expertise there. Uh, so we were able to put a team together. But it's always hard in the beginning because you don't really know what you need. What was your biggest barrier or learning curve that you would say? And uh, as a follow-up to that question, when you mentioned that um, you quickly realized that this was an organ transplant and you needed uh, a general surgery surgeon to be there to provide you with the skills and all that uh, and the technical aspects of the operation, currently in Dallas Baylor, are you having general surgery residents get get an experience of this operation? Yes, we are. So uh, we are the the transplant team in Dallas. It's the uterus transplant team. is it's from I'm hired by the transplant department. So it's run by transplant, and we try to get as much involvement from all the residents and fellows as we can, both in general surgery but also from the OBGYN side. So they are present when we do the surgeries. They are present when we do the follow-ups of the patients. They help us gather our data. They help us write our papers. So they are very much a part of this. And I think that's what we need to do. I mean, this is a very new topic, but we need to get knowledge of it out there for it to survive in the end. We want interested people and we are we need them. From a, from a donor standpoint, um it's really interesting when you start to think about, you know, living donors and deceased donors and then the different risks that's, you know, involved with mm-hmm. it being living donors. What What is done in this operation? Are you, do the allografts, do they come from from brain dead donors or are they coming from living donors or both? Or So in Sweden, when we started this, all of the donors were living donors and they were all directed donors. So they were mostly the mothers of the recipients. And uh, you have to understand the setting of Sweden is a very small country. It we, we quickly calculated if it was even possible to get deceased donors. And it's going to be very few deceased donors. In saying that, though, uh, here in the U.S., both Cleveland Clinic and University of Pennsylvania only has deceased donors. When we started in Dallas, we wanted both options explored. So we applied to get an IRB for living donors and for deceased donors. And we were surprised of the amount of women that just called in to us saying, I want to donate my uterus. So almost all of our donors in Dallas has been living altruistic donors. Some of them have, after delivery of the babies, met their recipients and the baby, but most of them never know who they donate to. And I thought that was quite fantastic. And uh, But if you think about it, it's, it's a very good organ to give away. It's not like a part of a liver or a kidney that you potentially could need down the line. This organ, when you're done with your childbearing, it's excellent for that part. But when you're done, you don't really need it anymore. Quite literally a gift of life. Um, that kind of segues into my next question. What kind of ethical dilemmas did you confront with this this novel uh, organ transplant because you're dealing with a lot of young, healthy patients. Um, yes. And what kind of ethical issues and um, challenges are you facing currently? 
So I think, I mean, we're changed, we're, we're facing ethical challenges every day. But it's very interesting that the debate, the ethic debate about uterus transplant has changed. So in the beginning, it was very, we faced a lot of criticism or dilemmas of whether we're going to do this at all and whether it's possible to do the surgery. And is it, is it right to put a recipient uh, for only for a fertility wish through all these surgeries and the donor parts. But now, since the first baby was born in 2014 from our trial in Sweden, and since then, when it was proven that it works, we more have debates. No one is saying, should we do it or not anymore? Now the ethical debate is more about how do we go about with living donors? How do we minimize the risk? Should we do robotic surgery? Who's going to pay for this? And how are we going to allocate the organs? I mean, normally, as you know, the organs goes to the sickest patient. Uh, no one's going to be more infertile than the other. So how is those processes going to look? So I think the ethical, we have left the part of if we're going to do it and if we can do it. But now we are more saying, okay, we are going to do it, uh, but how are we going to perform it? So it's quite interesting how the ethics has changed uh, with the evolution of the field. Do you have do you have any sense right now in in this country how many how many women are listed for a uterine transplant is it just a handful or is it So it's uh we've done at Baylor we are going to do our 20th case next week so that's the largest trial in the uh, in the US and then you have two more active centers and that's Cleveland Clinic and University of Pennsylvania and they have done a handful of cases each uh, and all of those trials are still experimental. But now we're facing this challenge of taking this from the experimental world to clinical. And we know, we don't have a list for uterus transplant as of yet, but we know the interest is massive. And if you look at the diagnosis that can lead to, to uh, going to a uterus transplant, it's thousands of women out there. So I think the field has the potential to really expand. But we are currently in that kind of, we are now choosing directions. Are we going to overcome the challenges of getting this into clinical? So we are now writing this history. So we'll see what happens in the next coming years. But if we get this working, uh, it has potential to be massive. What's your um, suggestions, recommendations for someone who is interested, um, especially if I would ask from a general surgery resident standpoint who is interested in seeing what the uterine transplant is and uh, wants to do some training or and or, or research, um, what kind of resources are available? So we currently, there's no formal training for uterus transplantation. I would think that it's going to go, if it takes off, it would go into the abdominal transplant training. Uh, we are very open. Every time we do surgery, we have surgeons from all over the world. We have residents that contact us that comes and look at the surgeries. And they can always come and look at our clinical trial as well. So I would say if you have interest in this, please contact us and we will we'll connect you to a team that does it or to us uh, because we really, really need the interested people. And we are very welcome to, to uh, residents and fellows that want to come and observe or, or even take part in it. Dr. Johansson, can I ask a technical question? So... Um... For the graft itself, coming from a deceased donor, what do you use as the inflow? What do you use as the outflow? And um, what do you what do you hook up? And the recipient, what what all do you hook up as far as yeah, so, you know, vagina, vagina, so, cervix, cervix, or 
yeah. So you take the, the uterus itself with the cervix, obviously. Then you take a rim of the vagina from the donor so you can attach that vaginal rim to the recipient's vagina. And in terms, in terms of the vessels, you take the uterine arteries on both sides. In a deceased donor, obviously, you can take part of the internal iliac also. And then you take the uterine veins and also the uterovarian veins. So that's the part that goes in between the uterus and the ovaries. In a deceased donor, you would also be able to take the whole ovary and the ovarian vein. And then you connect uh, them the same way as you would connect a kidney. So you go to the external mm-hmm. iliac, you connect them bilaterally though. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we have the two arteries, one on each side, and then we try to at least have one outflow on each side. So we select the vein that looks better and looks greater in dimension and and do that one to the external iliac. So it's a little bit different technique in living and deceased donors, but both of them seems to be working good. And then the when the, the baby is born, it's delivered by a cesarean section? So far, yes. Uh, we mm-hmm. haven't known. It's, it's only been about 15 babies in the world that's been born mm-hmm. so far. So I think, I mean, at some point we are going to, try to deliver vaginally, that's going to happen. But as for now, it's a C-section. And then at what point in time does the uterus come out after the delivery? So with the, the trial is uh, for one or two pregnancies. We currently have a, a patient that's going through her second pregnancy, but by the time she delivers, we are going to take the uterus out. We try to keep the uterus for a, for a maximum of five years with the recipient just to minimize the, the immunosuppression exposure. So, Because we know that these are young and healthy and we want them to have their kidneys for the rest of their lives. Correct. Um, so does um, two question, two-part question again here. Um, mm. How is the immunosuppression, is it any different from any other organ transplant? And um, once the transplant is done, the patient's kind of on a stable immunosuppression regimen, how what do you recommend to your patients? Like how quickly can they like uh, think of getting uh, pregnant? Yeah. So the immunosuppression, if you start there, is very standard. So most of our patients are first induction therapy, obviously, which can can vary from institution to institution, but then they're on tacrolimus and uh, acesiabrin. So that's, that's what they are throughout the pregnancy. In the beginning, in Sweden, we gave them MMF during the first month, but that's uh, fetotoxic, so you don't want to do that close to pregnancy. So we have taken that out. So our patients are on a very basic immune protocol. Uh, and in terms of when to, they can get pregnant, so in the beginning, also back in Sweden, we adopted the, the recommendations for other organ transplants. So we waited a year from the transplant until we started the embryo transfers to get them pregnant. But now when we came to Dallas, we thought, well, well, these are healthy patients. You want to minimize the time. Uh, they have the organs. So we are now down to three to six months after the transplant. We give them their embryos back and they can get pregnant. So we're trying to do our best to, to minimize the time as much as we can to do what's right for these patients. But it's a lot of, and that's what's so exciting. It's a new field. So no one knows. So we're kind of making the the recommendation and rules up as we go along. That's that is amazing. Such uh, such a novel topic. Such interesting, cutting edge research. Uh, thank you so much for enlightening us on this topic. Until next time, dominate the day.
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.